0: I'm a free black man hold up my head black man beautiful black man I don't dare feel nice man I love your brother black man and chase your dreams black man and get that green black man with the original man Songs have provided me keys to life out of relative obscurity a coherent personal mission has been defined and pursued There have been messages sent to me from the grassroots and a radical redistribution of spirit, has opened the door to a priceless and life-sustaining commodity called forgiving. This is Iron Mike Stedman, and you're listening to Confessions of a Native Son, a Black veteran's perspective on race, culture, and business. The quote I just read come from today's guest, Ulysses Butch Slaughter, and his book, Forgive, the new mantra and practice for Black men. I came across Ulysses one night while looking up podcasts discussing the late Dr. Amos Wilson, An African-American psychologist, social theorist, pan-African thinker, and author most known for his book, The Blueprint for Black Power, a moral, political, and economic imperative for the 21st century. You know, for the last two years, I've been reading a lot of black literature from authors not typically taught or spoken about in mainstream black history. Guys like Dr. Claude Anderson, Sam Greenlee, and countless others, which we'll eventually explore on this show. Upon searching for Dr. Wilson, I came across Ulysses' podcast, The Alpha Black, which inspires Black men to build personal practices of excellence through forgiveness by elevating the messages of mighty Black men whose actions will live longer and louder than their words. Black men such as Malcolm X, Fred Hampton, and Marcus Garvey. In an episode entitled Free Your Mind, Black Man, Ulysses discussed Amos Wilson and his powerful message of challenging why we think the way we do. After listening to the podcast, I binged all the other episodes on the series and eventually purchased Ulysses' book, Forgive. I contacted him through his website and invited him to be a guest on the pod. I spent so much time reading and learning about Black scholars and intellectuals who are no longer with us, it just felt refreshing coming across someone I could talk about these figures with. Ulysses is an author, an alchemist, and an intellectual. And at an early age, he endured a traumatizing event that led him down a path of anger, Rage and pain Until he was able to transform this act Through the power of forgiveness This is an intimate conversation That only two black men can have with one another And I feel fortunate enough to share it with you As always Thank you for sharing your time with me And I hope you enjoy today's show And circle back to the hood And teach them to do it do it do it, do, it, do it do it, do it, And circle back to your hood And teach them to do it And we are live. What's going on, everyone? I'm excited today. I appreciate y'all tuning in for another edition of my show. You know, I get great guests on here all the time. A lot of my guests, you guys, you guys and girls out there, might have never heard of. But uh, today, man, I got Ulysses Butch Slaughter here from the Alpha Black, and uh, it is uh, super humbling to have him here today because, you know, for me, I'm a scholar. I consider myself a, a scholar. I study African American studies, American history. You know, I began planning to get my Ph.D. in history one day. And over the course of this pandemic, I've really done a lot of self-searching and uh, done a lot of deep diving into a lot of uh, you know author, historians, black historians. You don't hear a lot about. And one night I was looking up uh, Amos Wilson, Dr. Amos Wilson. And for those, I'm going to let Ulysses talk about him a little bit. But all I know is I got on uh, I got on um, the podcast app, put in Dr. Amos Wilson. And the first thing that pops up was a podcast called The Alpha Black. And I listened to this episode. And let me tell you, man, this podcast is probably one of my top five podcasts I've ever come across. And so I reached out to Ulysses and was able to get him on the show. And uh, I'm excited to have him here and tell, let him tell you a little about who he is and what he does. And he's also a Navy veteran. So uh, bon-
1: bon- bonus points for that. What's going on, Ulysses? Hey, man, thank you for having me. I'm I'm honored. Uh, to be asked to be part of your podcast. Uh, I don't do this as much as I'd like to. And when somebody finds me, kind of like you did, and reaches out to me, I I don't think people understand how tickled I still get when somebody calls me. I think some people find me to be kind of gruff and a little uh, hard to approach. Uh, So they don't expect for me to smile or laugh when they reach out to me and say, Hey, would you come on my podcast? And I like a little boy on Christmas. Oh yeah, absolutely. So thank you so much, man.
0: Will you tell our listeners a little bit about what the Alpha Black is and why you started that podcast?
1: Yeah. So the Alpha Black is, is a podcast, but the Alpha Black is also uh, an, an aspiration. Alpha Black is an aspiration to be the most excellent black man I can possibly be. And when I think of Alpha Mike, I think of God. So uh, an Alpha Black is a God Black. And I'm not talking about any particular religion. I'm talking about uh, the highest thing that we were created to be uh, is what the Alpha Black aspires to be. It aspires to be approaching God constantly, working through what I call the degrees of captivity toward the best kind of man, black man possible. And so I recognized with who I am that I'm made up of a lot of black men who I've studied throughout my life, black men who have influenced me and that if I could synthesize the best of who they are, that I could be an alpha black. So an alpha black is an aspiring black man, one who aspires to be the absolute best that he was created to be. And one who looks at those black men who contributed. And and sometimes those black men who contributed uh, didn't contribute intentionally good stuff, but the alpha black is able to transform, uh, alchemize, I like to say, uh, the so-called negatives into positives to continually approach God. You released your podcast
0: right around the pandemic right? Right around the pandemic hit. And I just found it interesting in sense of just like where the world's at today, you know? And why do you think it's so important for you to kind of put this playbook out here, this mantra, you know, this call to arms on, you know, being the best version of yourself for black men, you know, in the time of so much chaos?
1: Well, I, one of the things that I think is really important and it would have been nice if black men could have figured this out without what we view as a crisis. Um, but it's like the, the the whole idea of what we were supposed to be and what we could be was totally taken away. We spend years, decades, as men aspiring to be that. Uh, design that was actually designed for us. A lot of what, like you talk about Amos Wilson, Amos, Amos Wilson, one of the things that he says that I love, he asks, how do you know what you want? And he says, we were seduced or you are induced with your desires. So you actually don't know what you want outside of what somebody told you you should want. And not, not, not often do people stop to think about, how did I come to want what I want? And so in this time where people are trying to reorient themselves to the possibilities, they realize that everything that they were aspiring to, or a lot of what they were aspiring to, was in the control of someone else. That what they wanted was being held by someone else. And if what they wanted was being held by someone else, then they were being held by someone else. So when you wash all that away with what is being referred to as a pandemic, when you wash that away and you leave people standing naked, and now like, oh my God, what used to be isn't there anymore. So now what am I going to be? How am I going to do myself over, right? That's kind of where we are right now, and I think it's it's there's a there's a strong possibility here. Uh, I love this this line that this person says. Well, we have to be careful that we don't allow our cognitive map to be hijacked. Many of us don't recognize that our cognitive map was hijacked a long time ago. So, what we aspire for actually isn't. Who we can be is who we were told to be. So if we could take this new empty, uh, this new this new blank piece of paper, this new uh, kind of nothing, something amazing can come out of it. And, and I'm hoping that people will start to ask themselves. I'm asking black men in particular. I'm hoping that they will ask themselves, what kind of world can I help to make and be a part of that did not exist before? And that's important. Instead of waiting around to see what the next order is going to be, and you and I as military people know, uh, we, we're used to taking orders, and, and sometimes we should be good with taking others other orders. Other times, we should be careful about the orders that we take. And so now is an opportunity for us to Build a different reality with a different set of values that mean something to us, something that cannot be taken away from us. But what is that? I think that's what the Alpha Black needs to be deliberating about.
0: I appreciate your content that challenges us to think like that, particularly your podcast and your book, Forgiveness, The New Mantra for Black Men, because it focuses on this idea of like being really centered. You know, centered in a sense of like, who are you? What do you want? Not what everybody else tells you you should want, but no, what do you want? What are your goals and aspirations, you know? And as a social entrepreneur, you know, dealing in this capitalistic economy, you know, for black men, it's always this sense of, man, go make a lot of money first, then pull people up, you know? And I'm like, I don't want that, you know? And I'm always push against that. And then, you know, I read stuff like your book and it kind of gets to the back, like, you don't get to dictate how I build my company. You don't get to dictate how I exist in the world. And it's my- I love that.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, man. I love that. And I was just writing something like that, Mike, that there's this way that people, even now, uh, I see powerful people attempting to dictate the terms of other people's existence. That's not what the Alpha Black is all about. The Alpha Black is about creating the terms of how i'm going to engage and those terms being truly mutually beneficial when i'm in a relationship with somebody when i'm in when i'm in relationship with anybody there has to be reciprocity and the relationship has to be mutually beneficial there has to be a balance of give and take and so right now There's an opportunity. I don't, there's a reason why I don't like the term reset because it's being used in different places around the world as, uh, in a very manipulative way. And I, I don't like it, but there's an opportunity right now for black folks to reinvent themselves, black men to reinvent themselves. And, and I say, take it, take this opportunity.
0: Before we do a a deep dive on your story and uh, what led you even making the Alpha Black I want to go ahead and give our confessions. You know, it's a good, big part of this show. And so, you know, I'll go ahead and go first. And I've actually got two confessions for you all today. You know, the first confession is uh, we talk about this concept of forgiveness and forgiving others, forgiving other people that wrong us, right? Parents, you know, loved ones, teachers, whatever, police, right? We got to let go of all that anger and all that stuff that's inside of us. But a lot of times we don't even talk about forgiving ourselves, you know, and one of the things you talk about in your book is this idea of maintaining the practice, meditation, you know, working out, eating healthy. And I've been slipping on my practice, you know, personally, I've been slipping on it, you know, but at the same time, and I was actually talking to my girlfriend about this um, last night was, you know, when everything, when nothing's happening, when I don't got any income coming in, you know, when I'm still trying to figure out this entrepreneurial hustle, You know, I'm practicing, I'm working out, whatever, all this kind of stuff. But then once I start to get clients, you know, the vision is real. It's taken off. It's not an idea anymore. It's in the world. And now like you're starting to make money and stuff. That's when I start to slip and stuff starts to get kind of bottlenecked. But I also, I say all that to say is sometimes I got to also learn to forgive myself. You know, like me and you military guys, we understand, you know, it's all good to be cut and fit and in the gym and kicking butt and taking names, but At some point, though, there's also more important things at time, too. So you hear people say this balance, you know, I can't be spending two hours in the gym. You know, I'm spending money, you know, serving my kids here in Newark through Ironbound. You know, I'm building my business. I'm helping out the community. And so just understanding I'm not perfect. I'm not Superman. And when I fall off the ragging, man, just forgive yourself, man. Don't take it so personal and just get back, you know, and that was me tonight. Got up 45 minutes for this interview. Got my little workout in the gym. But I got to start learning to forgive myself around that. And my second confession is, and this is something you touch on in your book about the situation with your father. And I'll let you share that. But, you know, I am 33. I've never met my father. My mom had a stroke while I was at the Naval Academy, um, my sophomore year of college. And so she's been bedridden kind of ever since. And I will say, you know, I don't talk about a lot publicly, but a lot of the situation between not having a father, mom, in a nurse home, there's like this anger inside me, you know, and I don't talk a lot of people about it, but when I feel pressed on it, I could feel myself damn near like choking someone out. You know, I have a lot of radical views about um, why black people are in a certain position they are in this country. And people come in and they say, well, you only think like that because you didn't grow up with a father or something like that. You know, you didn't have a, you didn't have a father. So that's why you push back against this, you know, idea of the breakdown of the black family. And it makes me so fucking mad when people say that, you know, but, you know, I think it comes from that sense of like, um, you know, not having some, they're just some, you know, we black people dealing with so much stuff in this country, man. It's so much, sometimes it's hard to put into words, but I feel like when I was in the Marine Corps, when I was an officer, when I was at the Naval Academy, hell, as an entrepreneur, it's still that feeling of like, man, nobody has to fucking go what I have to go through. You know, if they only knew like there is no safety net there. Like if I fall, nobody's catching me and I need to get past that and maybe have my own little talk of forgiveness.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, man, you hit you hit for me. Uh, my what will be part of my confession, uh, Mike, and it has something to do with anger and it has something to do with uh, a kind of self self loathing. For everything that I have accomplished, for everything that I probably accomplish on a daily basis, man, I must confess that there are times where I can feel still such a lack of confidence in myself that is shameful. Nobody would know for the things that they see me do or the things that I might talk about tonight. uh, If anybody saw me, or, or knew of the things that I've been able to accomplish, they would go, wow, dude, you are kicking ass. But what they don't know is that there is still a very, uh, I'm just going to call him pathetic little boy in here that feels a certain amount of shame that you, you just can't get it right, can you? You just can't do it, can you? And, and I've, wanted to, I've wanted to believe that that uh, inner voice was, a, was some form of motivation, but I don't want to keep hearing that voice. I don't want to keep justifying the self-loathing as a motivating factor. You know what I'm saying? I don't want to keep giving myself that pass. And so I need to stop the self-loathing. And I need to stop being so damn angry about things because uh, I I was I was saying to somebody, I want to be more like Jack Johnson, the boxer who uh, you would see him whooping his opponent's ass. And, you know, Jack Johnson went through a lot of stuff. Uh, when he was fighting, you know, he was fighting all kind of white folks and they didn't, white men and they didn't want to see him win and they'd be heckling at him and he'd be in the ring. I want to be more like the guy that I see in those pictures that's beating the shit out of his opponent and smiling. You know, he'd be whooping the hell out of these guys and smiling at the same time. I want to be that. I know he was catching hell, but he was smiling at the same time. I want to be more like that. And I I, I want to confess that uh, that anger and that self-loathing has not allowed me to be that place, be in that place.
0: I appreciate you sharing that for our listeners out there, you know, again, because you, you know, like I said, I see you. I'm like, man, this guy's an author, got his book out there published. You know, you've been in the media, you've done art, you've done all this kind of stuff, done a documentary. And I see that. You know, I see that piece of it. But again, again, you know, we have these like, damn, like you say, that self-loathing piece in that. I appreciate you as an alpha black yourself uh, getting vulnerable with our audience and us sharing that. So before we continue with the interview, I want to go ahead and give a shout out to our sponsor, Dope Coffee, a lifestyle brand that pairs urban black culture with innovative product offerings in the coffee industry. We're not a coffee brand for black people. We're a coffee brand that seeks to elevate black culture through a lifestyle of premium coffee and candid conversation. You can place your order today at www.realdopecoffee. www.realdope.coffee. Shout out to my brother from another mother, Mr. Mike Lloyd, and the team from a Dope Coffee, man. So go there and show support, man. That's a Black-owned, veteran-owned business based in Atlanta, Georgia, and uh, they're doing a lot for the culture. And uh, it's just great to have them sponsoring this platform. So be sure to head over there. Also need you to visit sign up for our newsletter and you can also purchase some dope coffee through the website. If you're interested in having me speak to your organization, click the link on our website and someone from my team will get back to you. All right, Ulysses, ready to jump into the theme of today's show. And it's forgiveness, the new mantra for black men. And that's the name of Ulysses book, which I highly encourage you all to get. He's going to give the link at the end of the show, but until then, uh, Ulysses, I want you to take us back and can you just talk about your upbringing and uh you know what led you to
1: where you are today. Mhm. Mm-hmm. I'm originally from Chicago. I now live outside of Philadelphia, about 15 miles outside of Philadelphia. Um do a lot of my work in a small city outside of Philadelphia called Chester. Uh, I came to the Philadelphia area in 1990 when I joined the Navy and uh have been here since that time. Um, so in 90, I joined the Navy. I moved this way. And we're looking for an opportunity. You know, things weren't going so well in Chicago when I got here. and when, Before I got here, things weren't going so well. And Mike, it's, it, it's so easy when I reflect now that there's a way that my unresolved, my unresolved issues with my father played a big role in my decision to leave Chicago and in my decision to do so many things thereafter. So in 1990, I hop on a plane. I come here and I hop on the USS Constellation. 12 years prior to that, June 25th, 1978, I was 12 years old. And I wake up that morning, June 25th, 1978, to the sound of my mother and father arguing and my mother and father argued a lot i mean when i say a lot they argued uh and they argued hard too and i saw the uh the beatings and the, the stabbings and just it's just some really really ugly stuff up until i was 12 years old well On June 25th, 1978, what I now view as the unfortunate logical conclusion to all those years was the firing of two gunshots. My father shot my mother in the head twice and uh, killed her. And I was in the house when it happened, opened up my bedroom door and right there in the floor, my mother Clarice was dying of two bullets to to her right temple. And uh, I wound up being the lead witness against my father. So at the age of 12, and then into the age of 13, uh, I was called into court on a regular basis. Uh, My little brother, Keith, who at the time was 11, uh, was also a witness. Uh, I was the chief witness because I saw more. I engaged my parents more throughout that evening that she was shot. And um, from June 25th, 1978, uh, easily up until 1990 before I left, me and my father had a very contentious relationship. And it should be said that my father spent 39 months in prison. And he spent 39 months in prison. A lot of people said this to me as I got older because... I was a 12 year old chief witness and I was the son of the mother of the man and the woman involved And that my age and my relationship to the two of them uh, kind of compromise the integrity of, of my testimony. And so uh, my father spent 39 months in prison and when he got out, did not seem really interested in reconnecting with us. Uh, The only, the only reason why he reconnected with us was because my maternal grandmother who raised us happened to see him walking in downtown Chicago. And by that time I was, uh, 15 or 16 years old, 16, approaching 17. And, uh, she told him, you better call your sons. And so, I graduated high school in 84, so that's six years past my mother's uh, death. And then six years later, um, I'm on my way to Philadelphia. So in that that period of time between my mother's death and me coming to the Philadelphia area, my father and I saw each other periodically. Um, I remember at one point, Mike, even telling my father uh, that I had forgiven him. Man, I didn't know shit about forgiveness. You know, at the age of uh, 18, 19, 20, uh, right before I joined the military, I joined the military when I was 24. Yeah, I was 24 when I joined the military. Um, I didn't know anything about forgiveness. It was easy to say, I forgive you, but I didn't know much about forgiveness. And uh, from 90, Until 2010, my father and I didn't see one another, rarely talked. Uh, And interestingly enough, Mike, today is the 21st of December. On the 19th of December, 10 years ago, I actually went to my father's house with the intent of killing him. Uh, I'm looking at the date on my computer and I'm reminded that... uh, it was the 19th. I remember dates pretty well because it wasn't long after my birthday. I just turned 55 December the 15th, a week ago yesterday. I'm sorry, a week ago tomorrow. And uh, I traveled to Chicago back in 2010 when somebody told me that the court documents related to my mother's uh, murder were still available. My father and I had never talked about Uh, The case, we had never talked about uh, what happened in any depth. In 20 years, from 90 to 2010, mostly had us in a silence. So uh, when I found out that those court documents were still available back in 2010, I drove from Philadelphia to Chicago in a pretty bad snowstorm to the municipal court, uh, Cook County Municipal Court circuit court and they handed me a box man with all the transcripts from uh, the court proceedings. So I got to sit there uh, now 32 years past my mother's death looking through all these documents. It was mind blowing, man. Absolutely mind blowing.
0: I know, man. Um, I appreciate you again sharing this to a bunch of people you probably never going to meet and you do it on your own podcast. And, uh, you know, you said I was about to fucking kill my father. You said it. Um, but I think it's important for us to kind of share these stories too, because you know, you're veteran, I'm veteran. We always talk about PTSD, <laughs> you know, like you go to war and Iraq and all this kind of stuff and PTSD. We very rarely talk about PTSD with regards to all the trauma, black and Brown people experience in this country. Um, and so my question for you is, you know, for me, I try not to put labels on black kids anymore. I don't use at risk. I don't use impoverished. I don't use disadvantaged, you know, but when I think about the environment, you probably found yourself in, in Chicago at the age of 12, you know, you were probably had all that kind of labeling on
1: you. You're right, man. And, and I'm so glad that you don't do that. And I would, Caution others when they do that, because before my mother passed. Um, there were times when I was concerned. I'm named after my father. I'm a junior. And so I. the reason why my grandmother called me Butch is because my grandmother didn't like my father. So I had a nickname. And so Ulysses is something that I only uh, recovered In the last 10 years, you know, uh, I just decided I wanted my name back. Uh, But to label a child, as people tried to label me sometimes, they would say things like children who, especially men, men who witness domestic violence are more likely to become perpetrators. So my man, Mike, I can't tell you how many times I had to suppress my anger in a relationship or in a conversation with someone thinking that the devil was going to come up out of me and do something to somebody like what my father did to my mother. Uh, I've never been uh, a shouter. I've never been physically aggressive with any woman. Uh, I've been so suppressed. And I'm not saying that I I'm certainly not saying I should be. But I'm saying I've been so constrained around that, that I've often wondered, what if I snap? What if I can't hold this anger? What if the prophecy is that I am going to do what my father did? So when people would say things to me like, you, you know, you're more likely to do it because you saw it. That's painful stuff to hear, man. Nobody should have to hear that. It's like somebody was writing my future without me even having an opportunity to live it. And so, uh, again, I say anybody who who does that needs to be very mindful about what it is and how it is they're setting up a child who could very well and more often than not goes against everything that people expect of them in a very positive way. And I'd like to believe that uh, I've been able to do some of that with my life.
0: Take us back to that mindset psychologically from that 13 to 18. And the reason I'm asking for this is because a lot of my listeners don't get to really hear what goes on in the life of a young black male in the inner city and what he's thinking. And especially when you're dealing with the stuff that you saw at an early age, you know, I want to know what it was like and how you as a young man had to learn to push back against those kind of demons when people are looking at you too and saying, Oh, poor baby, you know, the kind of whispers when you're not in the room and, you know, having to walk in the principal's office and they understand your upbringing and the teacher understands and everybody has this comment about you, you know, you ha- before you've even been able to define your existence in that classroom, they're already like,
1: you know? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, in, in, in 78, Uh, The first time that I went to a Catholic school, my grandmother and my mother's brother enrolled me into a Catholic school. Prior to that, I had always been in in public schools and. They had to have told all of the teachers and all the administrators what happened. Uh, And one of the priests I write about this priest, John Calicut, in my book, uh, He became very close with me, and uh, he said something to me that, kind of like what we're talking about, set me off in a very confused way. He said to me, you know, unfortunately, the older you get, the worse this is going to become for you. He said, the older you get, the more you're going to think about what happened to your mother and the worse it could become for you. He didn't say, the older you get, the stronger you're going to become. The older you get, the more you'll be able to deal with this. He said, essentially, the older you get, the weaker you're going to get around this matter. I don't think that he meant any harm, but that doesn't mean that harm wasn't done. And uh, I remember uh, telling a friend of mine when I was in seventh grade, uh, became really good platonic friends with a with a girl in 7th grade and uh, I remember telling her she asked me where my mother was and I remember telling her what happened Mike this I'm, this, I'm in 7th grade man she started crying uh, everybody wants to know what I had said to her and it was just it was sad I I remember that 7th grade moment you know um, and I started to feel like a pariah, man. I mean, I started to feel like something was wrong with me. I, I, I would lie. I got to the point where I would lie. People would say, what happened to your mother? People who knew my mother would ask what happened. I said she had cancer. Um, I, I mean, I was just a lying ass for a long time. Uh, I, I felt like if I told this, this girl in seventh grade what actually happened, if she had that kind of response. I need another story (laughs) because the one that I told her really upset her. And then on top of that, I got this priest telling me it's going to get worse. Man, I was a ball of confusion. I was a ball of frustration, a ball of anger. Um, And like I said, I'm just, I don't think people understand and I don't blame them for understanding if they've never seen anything like this. People have often said domestic violence, the, depending on what kind you experience, it's like going to war. So when you use the term PTSD, I've, I've read where people will compare that kind of pain and that kind of agitation and that kind of stress and trauma to going to war. Man, I watched my father stab my mother in the head when I was little. Um, he used to stalk my mother. So he'd show up in our house coming through windows. I mean, this shit was bad. And so as I got older, I almost felt like I had to be a particular kind of bad boy. I was never arrested. I never had any problems with police or anything like that. But uh, sometimes that's even worse because nobody sees my bad. The police, when they see a you know a bad boy, that bad boy gets attention. But the kind of bad boy that I was is kind of playing under, or playing uh, above the fray and, and out of view, and that's dangerous. It's really dangerous because nobody can check the things that I do. I mean, little I mean, I, I, I got to tell you, man. I mean, I was doing little really bad shit. Bad shit, like, uh, torturing animals and shit, Mike. You know? Um, I did bad, secret bad stuff. Nothing that, uh, I can say that I'm proud of, but when I look back at that character, I, I feel so bad for him because he was trying so hard to hide uh, his pain, and like not a lot of people got it. Trying to hide his pain, and at the same time, um, wanting to be seen, but afraid that if you see me, then uh, I'm, I'm gonna get caught, and I'm gonna be like my father, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get what he got, and it, it's it it was a tough. Uh, I'd say six to seven years from twelve to nineteen. Yeah, man, it was tough.
0: I think too, when you add the fact of for us as black men, even though we may or may not have the fathers in our lives, people still say you look like your father. You remind them of him. You know, this that you're like the walk-in incarnation of this individual that you may or may not have a relationship with, but you can't escape him
1: yep and that's an excellent point man as you said that i just glanced up at a picture of my father and i was looking at a picture of me with my son on my birthday uh my 29 year old and uh looked at my picture and i was like damn i look just like my dad standing next to my son and i don't have i don't have anything like the feelings That I used to have for my father, the feelings of resentment, bitterness and all that kind of stuff. But uh, it is, as you said, uh, it can be a little destabilizing to want to escape that. But every time you look in the mirror, it's like, there he is again. The more you escape it, the more it chases you around. That's right. The more you try to run, the more it follows you. Yep.
0: I'll tell you on a previous interview too, I have a veteran who's studying, uh, he's got a company called True Genomics. So he's studying the human genome. And, you know, for us as black people, we grow up, people always tell us the ancestors are talking to us and this and that, you know, and it sounds kind of hokey pokey, you know, but then the science starts to catch up and you realize memories and trauma and stuff is getting passed through the genome. And there are people that are studying this stuff, you know, and I say that to say, you know, whatever trauma led, you know, your father down that rabbit hole, you know, at the end of the day, that stuff is still in you, you know?
1: Yeah, I was just talking with a sister the other day, uh, who deals with epigenetics and historical trauma, trauma that is part of a family line. Um and I I think what what I like that she pointed out is that you you could I could, as she said, focus on my father as the only contributor to who I've become, or like I do in this book, I can look at all the people who have contributed. And then I can begin to kind of pick how I want to honor and be with all of those people who live inside of me. Just like I have a father, I have a mother, and I have a two grandfathers, and I have two grandmothers, and I have aunts and I have uncles. So if I want to focus My mind directly on my father and just kind of be uh, hypnotized by the speak, so to speak, by that relationship. And I'm just angered there. That's my choice. But if I open up my lens and I see everything else, then I go, Oh, you know, yeah, he's in there. But look at all these other people that are there, too. I'll tell
0: you, um, for me, that is that's the kind of spirit I'm in, you know, mm-hmm. because I've, I've struggled early on, not as much these days. But I think, you know, maybe it was a subtle struggle, that idea of like, I don't know who I'm supposed to be. You know, it's this sense of like on the flip side, on one side, when you have a male figure in your life, like a father, or dad, let's say he runs a grocery store or something or runs his own auto shop. That's always naturally an option for you, whether you go down that pathway or not. But, you know, you grow up, you see that, you see what you can become. I think, again, this is why your book is so important. Black man that grew up in situations like myself or yours, where we don't have that, the best male figure around. We don't have a male figure around in general. Like in my case, I didn't have any. uh, I had cousins and stuff, but I didn't have a father figure around. I had no idea of what I could become. Right. You know, and so. It's this sense of like, even now, you know, for a long time, man, like even still today, if I meet a positive male figure in my life, I'm naturally gravitating, curious of wanting to go down that rabbit hole, my right. first boxing coach. right? And I'm like, I want to be a boxing coach. You know, <laughs> I would tell everybody I'm about to be the next boxing coach at the Naval Academy, you right. know, where I get my right. company commander in the Marine Corps. And it's this sense of like, man, like. And it it wasn't until I got older, where it's like, man, I'm putting unfair expectations on these individuals. You you guys are just like a company commander, but he's like a male figure that is like in my ass. You understand? Right. Right. He's never going to be a father figure to you. But when he looks at you and tells you you're wrong or you fucked up, it stings extra hard because you're trying to get that approval. And it's just bam, bam, bam throughout my life. And then eventually... And I do want to create a little bit about entrepreneurship with this of that sense of I can be whatever the fuck I want to be. Mm -hmm. I take Mm -hmm. a little bit of this. I take a little bit of that. I apply this. I apply that, you know. And then I start just accepting these voices in my head, the Malcolms and the Baldwins and also, you know, the entrepreneurs. uh, uh, What's the guy's name? Damn, man. Reginald Lewis. Reginald Lewis or the Peter Drucker's, you know, the yes. white guys too. Yes. The management consultant, you know, the Jim right. Collins of the world. And I take all these mentors and all these people that do creative stuff and I put it together and I'm like, damn, Mike, you can be the Peter Drucker of the podcast world, or you can right. be the Malcolm X on podcast and the James right. Baldwin. Um, so that's just what kind of comes to my mind when you talk about that.
1: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And I, you know, ultimately I, I was, I'd say fortunate enough to learn uh some really interesting lessons. I I noted a little while ago that it was ten years ago, December the nineteenth, that I went back to my father and after seeing these court documents, went back to my father thinking I would kill him. But it was on that day that I confronted him face to face and hadn't seen him in 20 years, man. I mean I, I had I started stalking my father. Uh, whenever I was in Chicago, I would go to his house and sit outside his his window and wait for him to come outside. I did that for, man, like 20 years. Anytime I could go to Chicago, I would do that. It wasn't stalking like, you know, every day, but it was the kind of thing that had it where anytime in, I'm in Chicago, I'm going by there and I'm I'm going to look for him. In this particular time, December 19th, 2010, I go back and there he is standing there. And uh, I had somebody go in a house and ask him to come out. And he was scared because I had actually, before I wrote Forgive, the new mantra in practice for black men, I wrote another book. And that book, I sent it to you, I believe. I sent you a small copy of it. It was called Dear Daddy, I Hate You, Letters to My Mother's Killer. And I, when I created that book, I, it was just going to be a bunch of letters. But then I thought when I wrote that book and that was back in 2008, I thought, you know, this, this could be good for me and it could be cathartic for some young men that I had been working with. I wasn't interested in forgiving back in 2008. So I packaged that book and I took that book to my father's doorstep. And left it in his mailbox. I didn't see him, but I left it in his in his uh, mailbox. And and so from 2008 up until the time that I returned 2010, my father was on high alert, wondering when this dude, his son, was going to show up to kill him. And so when I did show up in 2010, and somebody told him I was outside, he thought that was it. You know, later he would tell me when 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 I. I came outside and saw you standing there. I knew you were just you were just going to kill me and I was ready to whatever you wanted to do, I was ready. But that's not how it turned out. We wound up uh exchanging uh some loud words uh over the course of a couple of weeks. And ultimately, he he asked me, he said, you know, I I I want to start all over. And I said, if that's what you want, if you really mean what you say, then from now on, when I go do domestic violence workshops, cause I was doing domestic violence workshops in 2010, I said, when I do them from now on, you go with me. And he said, okay. And I was shocked. It's like, wait a minute. Are you serious? Um, and we wound up on the Dr. Phil show in January, of 2011. Um, and I wound up producing a television show for the Oprah Winfrey Network based off of uh, the work that I had started to do with my father that I had actually done with a number of other people prior to that, you know, go, going through the Catholic church. I'd heard enough about reconciliation confession, uh, forgiveness. I'd heard enough about that, that it actually had made an impact on me, but I wasn't ready to apply that shit to my father. But, um, when he said that he would do domestic violence workshops with me, I, I couldn't believe it, uh, but he meant it. And we wound up doing one presentation together, uh, in February, 2012, actually it was March, 2012 and he died about 2 months later. So uh it was an it was an interesting very short uh 16 months for us from the time that I saw him in December 2010 to the time that he died. About 16 17 months but Mike I learned so many lessons man in that short period of time about forgiveness. Uh, I learned something about my capacity to take control of my life. I was able to face this father that I had viewed as a monster and realize that he was not nearly as threatening or deadly as I thought he was. Um, I was able to reclaim myself, man, by confronting my father. I was able to redeem myself and help him with some level of redemption, which a lot of people struggle with when I, when I talk about what my father and I did and how my father in his last months of life tried to uh, make up for what he had done. Uh, I think, I, I, Mike, I've never killed anybody. You know, I hope I never do. That my father killed my mother. Uh, I, I truly believe it. It took a part of his life every day. I, I, I always believe that if he could do that all over again, he would do it all over again. And I could have for the rest of my adult life stewed in anger, uh, self-destructive thinking. I could have done a lot of things to harm myself. Uh, I could have ignored him and not introduced him to my children. I ultimately introduced him to my children just months before he died. So being uh, strong enough to do that, I was able to look at myself in the mirror and go, damn, dude, you you are okay. You, you, you're not as bad as you've been thinking you are all this time. You ain't as weak as you keep telling yourself you are. And uh, I learned a lot, man. I learned a lot, and it ultimately brought me to the point where I would write, forgive, the new mantra and practice for black men.
0: That's a long journey that got you to that point to where you can look at yourself in the mirror mm-hmm. talk about this idea of a practice. And mm-hmm. I'm sure this wasn't something that you just rolled into at 19. It was like, Oh, I got my practice. I'm gonna go join the Navy, whatever. Yeah. Take us through this journey from 19 to, cause in your book, man, you got literally every black thought leader before it was thought, leader, I don't even know what to call these individuals, right? Because yeah. it just, it span, it's such a strong list. Yeah. And very few, unfortunately, of our generation today can look at that list and know who those people are right. and know the legacy and the stamp they left in America. Yeah. But take us through that process of forming this, doing the deep dive with these scholars mm-hmm. and how it led you to apply it to your own practice so you could ultimately forgive your father.
1: One of the things that I will forever be grateful for for my father in particular was his choice in music. My father had a a really good uh, choice of musicians and bands, and so did my mother. And it never really hit me that when I was six, seven, eight years old, that the the soul musicians and, and singers that I was listening to were actually talking to me. So I can repeat songs. I was singing songs and didn't realize that by singing these songs that I was actually eating the lyrics and shaping my character with the songs that I would sing. So I talk in the book about Gil Scott Heron. Gil Scott Heron had a song called Issure Your World. He's got a number of songs that I love, but my father... Bought that album when I was a little boy, and when I was a little boy, I didn't give a damn about who Gil Scott Heron was, but I remembered that song. And as I got older, and I started to listen to the song "It's Your World," it started to resonate with me different because it was again like Gil Scott was talking to me and telling me that the ground beneath my feet was made for me. There is no any, there is no other place, any one place where I belong. And I, I repeat those lyrics. And it's like a a chant. It's a reminder to me. I listened to Stevie Wonder. Stevie Wonder has a song called Ass that my mother and I used to sing together all the time. It's probably one of the longest songs that he has. It's about nine minutes long. And it comes from his album called Songs in the Key of Life. And he has a line in there where he says, We all know sometimes life's hates, and troubles will make you wish you were born in another time and space. But you can bet your life in that in twice it's double that God knew exactly where he wanted you to be placed. And so when I think about that line that, yeah, sometimes I hate my life. Sometimes it, this just makes me mad. And Stevie says, yeah, but you better believe God knew exactly where he wanted you to be placed. So even if you're mad about this, you need to understand that God has worked you into this for a purpose. You have a purpose. You are where you are because that's where God wanted you to be. And, you know, again, I'm eight. That came out when I was maybe 10, 11 years old. It didn't mean anything to me, but I knew the song. So as I got older and I could repeat these songs, then it started to dawn on me that, wait a minute. This is exactly where I'm supposed to be. Stevie was telling me that when I was 11. I didn't understand it, but I think I hear it now. He was saying that to me. Marvin Gaye. The night my mother was killed, man, I was listening to Marvin Gaye's album, I Want You. And uh, Marvin Gaye, as you know, did, does songs like uh, Inner City Blues and uh, 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 Mercy, Mercy Me. and. Um uh, Marvin Marvin was singing to me the night my mother was killed. Um I was given James Baldwin when I was 19 years old, this guy, that uh, older dude that I uh be, was fond of, just he was so damn smart. He turned me on to James Baldwin, gave me the book The Fire Next Time, and I read James Baldwin. Um there were others like, like uh, look, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, man, when I was a little boy, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar was the man. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, a lot of people don't know, was, was a martial artist, a painter, uh, very, very deep spiritual dude, man. And Kareem Abdul-Jabbar used to talk about when, when people would watch him play basketball that they didn't understand that he wasn't just playing with his body, but that he was playing with his whole soul. And I stop and I think about that. What the hell does that even mean? What does it mean for somebody to draw on the the energy of the universe? You know, can people even comprehend that stuff, Mike? That Like when you're boxing and you are inhaling the air necessary to sustain the strikes, you know, and when you are recirculating that stuff, We take this magic for granted. You know, we take the cardiovascular system for granted. This is an operating system unlike anything else. The brain is unlike anything else. The mind is unlike anything else. And Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is like, I'm integrating so many different energies from all around me. You know, so you asked me about this practice. This took a long time to make sense to me so when i talk about the practice and the practice has five components i talk about fitness i talk about the importance for the alpha black to have strong fitness now that's physical and intellectual fitness you got to have a strong body and you got to have a strong mind you got to feed that body you your body is a gift your mind is a gift so you gotta have fitness, you gotta have focused faith. I talk about that again, that Stevie Wonderline that I'm talking about, where he Stevie is saying, you got purpose, God put you here. And, and, and if you believe in yourself and you stay focused, focused faith, believe in yourself, focus that faith. It's something that you can make happen if you focus that faith. There's the forgiveness thing, That we're talking about. I say forgiveness is a way of integrating injuries. It's a way of integrating injuries. And amplifying power. So people will say stuff like, yeah, I'll forgive, but I won't forget. Well, the fact of the matter is nobody remembers everything. So you only remember what you remember anyway. So when I'm talking about forgiving. I'm talking about integrating injuries to be the best person possible. Take that stuff in. You turn it around and you put it back out as a form of, of, of power. I feel like I'm talking for a long time here. But I, there's a way that uh, we we have to figure out how do we, Integrate those injuries instead of saying, you know, I'm over that. People say, well, I'm over that. I'm saying, no, 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 don't don't say that you're over that. Use what you have. I use what happened between my mother and my father to gain power, to gain understanding. And so, it's not enough to say I don't, uh, I don't think about that no more. No, you need to be thinking about that. It's just the way that you think about that that needs to change. So, and I talk about food. So there's a a, uh, a food, same thing. You are what you eat, both physically and mentally. So your nourishment, your intellectual nourishment, the books, the stuff that you study, the music that you listen to, it's part of a practice. You know, you you, you want to reflect on this stuff every day. What did I eat? I mean, ideally, Mike, people should be able to look at, brothers should be able to look at what they put in their bodies as, as their power. You know, I just got through having a bunch of spinach. Well, what is spinach good for? I just got through having some pasta. What is pasta good for? I had some tomatoes. What are tomatoes good for? People need to be able to look at that not just as a way to fill the stomach, but to actually supply the body with the necessary nutrients. And vitamins, and minerals that the body needs, because we are what we eat. Likewise, what we're studying, when I read, man, like I can there, there are times, Mike, where I can start talking. And I know all I'm really redoing, all I'm doing is remixing and regurgitating a lot of stuff that I read. It this is this this isn't coming, you know, off the top of my head a lot of the times. It is part of who I am. It's because I ate. The stuff that I'm talking about, intellectually speaking. So I can turn that right back around. Now, I said that there are five aspects of a practice. If a person looks at my book, they would only see four. The other one is a little bit more. Some people would say "Well, that's a little bit more racy. But I talk about Marvin Gaye and Marvin Gaye talks about sexual healing. And I think that sexual healing is crucial. Sexual healing is crucial. Um, I tend to, I try to be careful with this one because I don't think people, a lot of people aren't uh, mature in this aspect of the practice. But one of the things that I did, man, um, and I don't know if you've seen this in, in any of the work that you may have discovered about me, but for three years, I actually, I actually created and managed an international reconciliation body for a large sex-positive organization in, 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 across, the, across the globe, from Australia to San Francisco. Uh, it was my job to essentially set the, uh, the rules of engagement for people who wanted to have sex a particular kind of way. People can do all kinds of things. So, and I sort I of want to go too far with this, but my point is, there is a way that our bodies need sexual healing, uh, of of a particular kind of uh, a particular kind of power. That if we negate that, we in in many ways are negating the the creative forces of of, of our bodies. I mean that's what sex is. It's part of the creative force of our body. So that last F is, you know, I tell people when I'm doing workshops, it's it's fucking. And I only use that because it's another F. You know, everything is food, fitness, focus, faith, and forgiving. Well, I could say sex, but it, you know, that doesn't begin with an F and I like to keep my F's, you know, together. Um But this is a practice, man. This is this is what keeps us Alive, well, generative, contributing Black men, sane Black men in this society. And it helps us to create the society that we want. So when I say in this society, I'm mindful that people are attempting to change this society. But as Gil Scott Heron said... We need to get to the point where we direct the changes instead of continuing to just go through the changes. So you got to know what you're working with. And and that's what that's really what the book is all about.
0: I applaud you for even talking about sex, too, because I'll tell you, man, you know, for me, that's and it goes back to like as I get older, like what is education? You know, even Wilson talks about it like education is whatever we make it. That's right. <laughs> you know, yep. but we look for all this education in all the wrong places. Yes. You know, no. and it is a sad, though, but like if you don't talk about that stuff in your book, if you don't talk about this on the podcast, people might not even talk about it. You know, for a black yep. man who's talking to you about sex, who's talking about that energy? Mm-hmm. You know? Maybe mm-hmm. you go to church, but are they really talking to you about it? Are they really talking about the demons you face? You know, like you said, we talk about, well, you can't help but fall in love, man. You know, but you meet a girl and you can't help but feel there's all this energy. You're like, man, you start thinking crazy, start acting crazy. Like, why are you dealing with all this stuff? But nobody is talking to us about that and how to control that energy. And you hear it in all the, you know, a lot of authors, business authors, too. You know, what was it? Napoleon Hill. You know, he talks about it. You know, after guys have kind of mastered how to deal with that energy and all that kind of stuff. At 50, they're off to the races.
1: That's right. That's right. right. And you know, I, I look at my sons, I have four sons, one that just turned 15, one that will be 17 in a few weeks. I have a 29 year old and I have a 31 year old. And when I think about who I am as a man and who I am as their father, uh, I, it's important to me, man, for me to give them the most comprehensive, uh, sincere man information that I possibly can. I mean, that's what I'm supposed to do. I can't be leaving it up to other people to talk with my boys about sex and relationships and sexual energy and reciprocity and how to hold your energy, how to... How to uh, increase your energy because it, there, there's something very immature about our inability to talk about that. I mean, you know, I tell them, um, you know, your mom's not a virgin and they laugh, you know, <laughs> of course, yeah. it's like, you know, your mom's not a virgin, right? <laughs> yeah. But to, 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 to not talk about that, Mike is to again, dismiss the beauty in life man I mean think about it we have sex a child is conceived from a very small small particle grows this human being and and if that is not uh, if that doesn't strike wonder in all of us I don't know what will part of part of our challenge is that we're so damn numb we become so numb to the wonder of it all that we're missing everything because we think we know it all, or we're embarrassed, or um, we're distracted. So to, to be able to practice, as I said, practice food, eating right, Intellectual food, fitness, intellectual fitness, physical fitness, forgiving. I say integrating injuries for innovation. We are innovative people. We integrate those injuries and then we can become innovative. We use that stuff. I used what happened with my mother and father to become a more innovative person. Instead of letting it destroy me. It's, as they say, it's, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. I allowed it to make me stronger. Forgiving fitness, focus, faith. Man, like we said at the beginning of the show, I was saying, you know, I don't want to be self-loathing. I don't want to be angry. I want to figure out how to get to another level of me that I've never even thought was possible. But the only way to do that is through some kind of Focused faith, meditation, uh, seeking is, is how I'm going to get there. Continually seeking. I mean, one of my favorite lines, Shakespeare lines, uh, is there are more things in heaven and earth than I dreamt of in your philosophies. So we've got these philosophies. we got these philosophies, but man, we. Who could possibly know it all? And if you don't know it all, why don't you keep seeking? Keep seeking. Just keep seeking. That's the journey. Keep seeking. Keep building up your power. Keep building up your business. Keep seeking. Don't give up. Keep the, keep the faith. Just keep going. And again, that's what that's why I have uh that's why I have this book, man. And uh I I, I think it's important that we keep the practice up.
0: Your book, I really like the fact that you say the new mantra for black men, Mm -hmm. you know, and this is a racy podcast. You just said you talk about sex. People say, oh, you're being racy. You know, we talk about energy and all this kind of stuff. Right. But in the George Floyd era, when everybody start to realize we're all black, you know, because listen, I'm an entrepreneur. I've been to a good school, elite school. Had Mm -hmm. a lot of people didn't realize I was black till George Floyd happened. They start dialing that phone. Hey, uh, Mike, how are you doing today? I'm good, man. I know we've never talked in like 15 years, but I appreciate you calling me to check on me. Right. That you found out I was black today. I appreciate it. I mean, they all make good, <laughs> you know? But the reason I, I want to highlight your book, right? We know the challenges people of color face in this. I'm not even talk about people of color. Let me rephrase this, because I, I have a nonprofit, right? I have black, brown kids, everyone. Mm-hmm. But I will not be remiss if I don't say, look, for black people, you know, we have issues specifically for us that we have to address. Right. You know? And I applaud you for making a playbook for black men. You know, and I think about like we need business stuff for black men, you know, because if we don't if we don't by not even having that. Right. It's like we're always having to look to find ourselves on the outskirts. You know, you look at a lot of history. Black people are not in the center. We're observers. We're on the outside. You know. You start to ask those questions. Yo, man, what were the slaves thinking when they were writing the Constitution? No, I want to know what they were doing at that moment. You know, I want to put me in their mindset. Don't tell me what they were thinking. No, I want to hear them in their own words. I want them at the center of this history because I want to know where my people are coming from. And when I think about us and these powerful mediums we have, podcasting, literature, play, you know, the, the arts and the theater, you know, what do you say to people out there who say, well, that's racy. Why are you writing something to just for black men
1: or just for black people? For the very reasons that you already said, Mike. And I'm, I try to get really clear when I hear people talk about people of color. Uh, well, everybody's a person of color when you really think about it. Uh, and, and I think black, the term is a self-defining term. So there are a lot of people who prefer to say African-American. I say black from a very strong political standpoint. I'm saying I'm claiming black as a political uh, a, a political l- label, but also a spiritual label. Black people, black men must have something for them. White men must have something for them. And these things don't have to be in opposition. I think this is where people struggle. It's like there's enough for everybody. So you raise yours in accordance with what yours needs. You can't raise yours like I raised mine. I have to raise my black boys as black boys. I can't raise them as white boys. I got to raise them as black boys and it does not have to be anti anything that's the thing that I tell people about the alpha black i'm not talking anti anything i'm just talking very pro black and to the extent that me being the best black man possible makes you the best whatever you are great i'm not i'm not aggressive i don't need to take nothing from you there's enough to go around and i'm black and i'm going to Pursue my life happily, courageously through this black skin. And uh, I I think that's the way that black men are supposed to go about it. We we can. When we are our absolute best, Mike, everybody is better. And I think people need to get that. When black men are courageous, everybody is better. Because we ain't coming for nothing that don't belong to us. (laughs) We coming for what belongs to us. We come for what's ours, and we want you to do the same thing. And and we can work together. But don't don't make me or don't expect for me to cower or, or act like, oh, I can't say black. Nah, I'ma say black. Don't 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 worry. I ain't trying to hurt you. I'm, I'm, I'm loving me over here. And loving me is not disrespecting you. Mike, I don't know if you are are like aware of. The work that I recently did with uh, the the Philadelphia Move bombing,
0: I am. I'm actually so going to come back on here too to talk about militarization of the police, and we're going to highlight that that story.
1: I'm bringing that up because I'm, I'm I want to go back to uh, the Stevie Wonder quote and that that whole thing of uh, God knew exactly where He wanted you to be placed in '85 when a bomb was dropped in West Philadelphia, on a family that people call MOVE. The Philadelphia Police Department drops a bomb on a house in West Philadelphia. Eleven people, including five children under the 18, are died. Back in 85, when that happened, Mike, I was in Chicago, and I remember walking through my friend's living room. And anybody who remembers TV in 85, TV back then ain't what it was today. You know, you only had a few channels and, you know, you caught the news at a certain time. And that was that. Wasn't no CNN on news all the time. But I was walking through a friend's uh, front room and his dad was sitting there watching the TV. This is 85. I'm still in Chicago. And he says, those crackers dropped a bomb on those people. And I kind of looked over my shoulder. I'm, I'm just 19. I was going to be 20 that year. I'm looking over my shoulder and I look and I was like, what is that? And I can see this little bomb go off on his house. I kept on going through the house, went to the back, me and me and my buddy did whatever we were doing. Little did I know that what I was looking at on that TV that day, that one day I would write the apology for the city of Philadelphia to resolve that matter. That apology was just read November the 12th this year. I wrote the apology that was read by Philadelphia City Councilwoman Jamie Gautier. That's my work. And I'm only saying that because it's because I am a black man that I have the heart for that kind of thing that I can look at that kind of thing and understand what is necessary to help bring it a little closer to resolution. It's hard to resolve. Just like it's hard to resolve my father shooting my mother in the head and thinking that there's going to be some way of making it all right. It's hard to think that you can make it all right with an apology, but you gotta start someplace, right? But in 85, Mike, I had no idea That 33 years later, I'd be talking to Wilson Good, the mayor, former mayor of Philadelphia, trying to figure out how to work this out. And again, I say that because. Believing in myself. Aspiring to be an alpha black, aspiring to that is what puts me in that position to do that. And I grow more confident. In my ability to do stuff like that. Every time I do stuff like that. And so I'm always looking for the next thing and I'm, I'm believing mostly I can help that who I am can help resolve that. You hit on an important topic of, you know, how does,
0: I can only imagine 85 and the fact they hit that history. I didn't know about that until i might've heard whispers of it. When I heard it on your podcast, I started looking it up and I was like, This is insane, you know? But it's like, do people feel the way we feel when we see a bomb dropped on a house of black people? When we see a black man gunned down in the streets, you know, we see ourselves, we see our kids, we see our family, you know? You can't escape it. I don't care who you are. You might try to deny it. You could be in corporate America, even in the suburbs, on the yacht, everything. But when I would like to think that when you see a black or brown kid killed, you know, you feel that little on the back of your neck. And it's hard sometimes because not everyone, they're like, why are you so passionate about it? You know, why are women so passionate about it? Because that's, you know, there's this idea like the diaspora. We are one. You start to feel it. You know, it's hard for us when we can't see it, but when we see it, we feel it. You know, and I think that's kind of like what you're, you know, you were getting at around, you know, the whole Philadelphia thing and why you were the one that need to write that letter, because that's not something that can come from
1: somebody that doesn't feel that you don't feel it. Absolutely. Mike, I, I felt that. And I, the, the, the uh, I can't even put into words, man. When, when a friend of mine called me and said, Hey, um, I think you should help them with this. And I thought back to the day that my father killed my mother. And everything for me, a lot of stuff for me, Mike, starts June 25th, 1978, because my work in forgiveness and reconciliation, my work uh, as an advocate for black men, male excellence, it all kind of starts back there. But that I could be walking a path from June 25th, 1978 through May, t- May 13th, 1985, when they dropped that bomb, all the way up to November the 12th, 2020, when this resolution is signed. It is, it's just amazing to me that I'm, I'm that same guy. I'm that same guy that woke up and found his mother shot to death. I'm that same guy that looked at that TV that day and saw that bomb dropped. I'm that same guy who for three years talked with people from different cultures, different languages all around the world, trying to get people to play fair and understand one another sexually. That's me. That's me. I'm that guy. He's not behind me. He's not in the other room. I'm him and I'm sitting in this chair and it has been this practice that I'm talking about. And I'm not even practicing as diligently as I should be, but it's this practice of focused faith, fitness, food and forgiving that has me here. And I think the better I get at this practice, and I shouldn't say better, I'll say the more efficient I become at this practice, the more helpful I can be to so many people. But I gotta start with me. I really do have to make my fire burn hotter. I gotta make my mind and my heart, my mind sharper, my heart bigger. I gotta, I gotta work on me because. These things are, I'm, I'm, I've become of a, a magnet to some of this stuff. And when it connects on to me, when it clicks on to me, I got to be able to give the necessary energy to this relationship so that it uh, it comes as close to resolution as possible. I've been just the, the, the thing that's really engrossed me lately has been the challenges of black people in COVID-19. Um, I, I work in a city where environmental racism, environmental racism, not environmental injustice, but environmental racism, which is the reality of black folks living in pollution and trash, I live in a city where for more than three decades, people have been ingesting smog, have been uh, breathing in particulates that come out of the air from trash incinerators. I I work in a city like that. And, and I've watched this go on for 30 years, and now they're telling me that it's that reality that makes Black people more susceptible to COVID-19 than most people. This has been going on for three decades. These people have been living in this stuff for three decades. And now people are saying those are the conditions that will create COVID circumstances for those people. So, Mike, I say, and and, and recently I've been saying to people, well, with all this talk about a vaccine, help me to understand how a vaccine changes those conditions. Because let's say you give somebody a vaccine. Do you just send them back to those conditions? And what sense does that make? Does it make sense? No, think the economic piece too you
0: know it makes no sense is it going to reverse post industrialism you know black people have not had access to capital since we came into this country mike <laughs> <laughs> and people are like shocked oh my god we need black people need more access to capital i go mike? back to read dr kuanji afumu is it
1: kuanji afumu what was his name we, we talking about jaronza kanjufu kanjufu
0: yeah he's, he's writing right about you know how people survive without, you know, access to capital. And this goes back to that education piece I want to talk about. You know, education. What is education? We yes. start to do a deep dive and at its core, education is built on the survival of a nation. Yes. This is how we survive. You know, you're going to pass these traditions on so you can survive. It's like you're a tribe, you pass this on, you know? And we got to ask ourselves now, more so, like you said, taking advantage of opportunity, who is telling black people how we're supposed to survive and thrive in this country. What frameworks are you teaching us? You know, and where is it coming from? And so it goes back to like, you know, where I do this podcast is, you know, I've evolved as a scholar. And a lot of people, you know, we we give names, Radical, Hotep, all this kind of stuff, right? Without ever questioning, why do people give you those titles? Then you start opening the book and you're like, well, my man got four PhDs, you know, he'd been writing and publishing. And then you think about a guy like Amos Wilson, man, did he think CP were actually gonna read the blueprint, you know, but he still was like one day, maybe Ulysses and Mike are gonna come across this and it's gonna enlighten them. It's gonna carry things forward. And right. so I think about that and I wanna say this comment to you. You know, I I, I consider myself pretty well read, man. I walk into bookstores and I've been feeling frustrated. lately. I'm like, man, why do we have this little ass book section? And when I see the black leadership or black business, it's always a civil rights error. Yep. You know? And the Martin Luther Kings of the world stuff. I'm like, where's the leaders now? Right. The whole time I realized they were hiding them from us. They were never going to give them a platform. They right. were never going to give you a platform. Right. No, but they're out there. You just
1: got to go seek. Like you, you got to have a practice. You you do. You you absolutely right, man. And with that point of education. I love what John Henry Clark, the late elder John Henry Clark, ancestor now, John Henry Clark, said about education. He said education only has one true purpose, and that is to teach our children how to handle power. If, you're, if your education ain't teaching black people how to, black children how to handle power, it ain't education. Education's only purpose is to teach black children how to handle power. And 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 so when I think about again this this covid thing that people are dealing with I'm I'm thinking come on you all let's let's get logical around this. Let's get logical around the fact that if you get a vaccine and you live in slums you're going to have to keep getting the vaccine because you're going to keep living in them slums. What are we going to do about changing them slums? Where's all the money to change them slums? That's what we need. That's what we need to be putting money in. We don't need no fucking vaccine. We need you to change them slums. Because if you can change them slums, the stuff that makes them susceptible to this bullshit would go away. But the idea is to make vaccine junkies out of our people. We, we, we That's not, that ain't it. That's, that's not what we supposed to be doing people. Wait a minute. Let's put money toward cleaning up our spot. But see the pharmaceutical industries make a lot of money here.
0: I lot of money. It's incentive. It's capitalism. It's you know, capitalism. Not it's not capitalism, but I'm saying you got to ask somebody is making a
1: profit. You know, now who benefits Mike? That's the thing. It's like you can, you all can. Beat me over the head. I don't want to hear this bullshit about being an anti-vaxxer because I tell people I, I am a pro. I am very much pro-vaccine. We need a vaccine for racism. We need a vaccine for greed. We need a vaccine for corrupt politicians. Let's fast-track those vaccines. Shoot up racists with a vaccine. Let's get them. We need to clear them up. Make sure that they no longer have racism. Shoot up those greedy ass uh, business people. Shoot up. Those corrupt politicians, let's start with that vaccine. I'm very pro-vax. So, if all you all are doing is making money, you all are paying these huge pharmaceutical industries to shoot us up, how the hell are we ever going to get out of this? Yep. How in the hell are we ever going to get out of this if all y'all keep doing is shooting us up? That's what happened to Billie Holiday. They kept shooting her up keep shooting them up. No, we don't want y'all shooting us up. You want to do anything, clean up these nasty ass neighborhoods that we live in. Give us some fresh air, some clean water, some real food. And we'll be just fine. But this is why I say again, man, this is this is why I don't care where you where you live. Um I don't care um how much money you got. You can aspire to be an alpha black. You can aspire. You can. You can. You can practice faith. Faith is the faith is powerful, man. You can practice faith. You can practice forgiving more than ever right now, Mike. I think uh, black men need to learn how to forgive, and that forgiving is not. I'm not saying you know let bygones be bygones. I am saying our people need. Forgiveness, and we need some black men that are willing to lead the way because we've all been we've all been hurt, we've all been traumatized, and if we could get some brothers to lead the way, and I don't mean again, just kind of pushing it to the side, but you first got to confront what happened when I confronted my father, my father didn't know his father. I'm not giving any passes here, but my father didn't know his father, so he was a man trying to be something that he had no motto for. And I I I don't know where he got his ideas from. But I do know that when I had an opportunity to study him a little bit more as a man myself, I came to a better understanding of what I was looking at. I was looking at mostly a boy in a man's body, you know, but it, it takes a certain amount of courage. And I think it also might take some humility. Uh. Were it not for some of my father's mistakes, I would not have benefited from some of his mistakes. It's a tough way of looking at it, but my, like my uncle, my mother's brother, who was a, just a huge part of my life. He had a terrible alcohol problem. and was attempting to raise me after his sister was killed. He made a lot of mistakes, but if it was not for his mistakes, Mike, if I didn't get a chance to look at his mistakes, I wouldn't have made certain adjustments. And I need to be clear about that, that it was his mistakes that allowed me to make adjustments and to become a better man. I need to give him credit, even though he doesn't like to accept that credit. But that's a, that's, that's a different way of looking at things. And uh, humility is crucial when we're trying to figure out who we want to be And when we're trying to point the finger at other people and say, you bad person, Eh, man, everybody ain't built uh, to be a, a Marine, you know? Everybody ain't built to be an alpha black.
0: I think it's very important that you keep doing what you're doing. And I encourage everybody out there, all my listeners, you know, I believe that IP is very important, that intellectual property. Yep. Publishing your book, you know, doing these podcasts, doing something. And we have to sit, be comfortable in saying that we are doing this for certain groups too, you know, because we can't, you know, it's just this thing of like, you know, what is a black owned business? Who put the label on that? Who, you know, it's crazy now. You think all the rules for people to invest in black-owned businesses, you know? Oh, if you have a half a co-founder that is black or something, you know, all these rules to qualify for grants. I'm like, who are making these rules? Like who's telling people that this is a black owned business or like all this kind of stuff. And I, I say that all to say is we need leaders speaking on our behalf that are not afraid to, to, to be a little controversial, you know, but take ownership of the space like you said, the power, not just the ownership, but taking the power. And when I see your book and I see the stuff you're doing with the alpha black, that's what I see. And I applaud you for stepping up and doing that. And I want to see more of it. And before, you know, I let you go, and we wrap up this interview. You've got listeners from all walks of life right now. Right. You've got black Marine officers. You know, you've got military veterans. You've got white people, black people, brown people. You got the full spectrum. All right. What do you want to say to them before you leave this platform today?
1: Well, I'd ask them to uh, check out my website. Check out my, I have a website. It's UlyssesButchSlaughter.com. And if you're interested in a book, you can find something about the book there. If you're interested in the work that I've done in forgiveness, you can find uh, a video that I've done there. Um, I believe that A lot of people can relate to different aspects of who I am, like uh, there's there's the human in me that feels pain for different reasons, but I still feel pain There's the human in me that has aspirations uh, to be a really good person that I think a lot of people can relate to. There's the father in me. There's the husband in me. There, there are different parts of me that people can relate to. And I've chosen to lead with who I am as a black man first, because I think that we are at a crucial space for black men. And as I said earlier, the better the black man I am, the better contributor I am to a lot of people. I, you, I don't want to just be a man. I'm not just a man. This society has tried to define and frame who I am. And I've had to redefine, reframe who I want to be for me. So there's something, I find that there is something that I have to say about forgiveness about black manhood, about relationships. There's something that I say that just about anybody can relate to. So before you make any judgments about who I am or what I might have sounded like in this very brief time, take a look at my website and and you will see that I've attempted to cover a lot of ground in my life. I've attempted to contribute at a lot of levels. And um, I will continue to work to be the best black man I can be. And I hope that in doing so, people will, will, will gain the best of who I am and see that uh, my existence does not have to be opposing to anybody else's, but it can actually be com- complementary. that I can be here and, and everybody else can be here on this planet and, and not have to fight one another for space. So um, I look forward to, you know, whoever might decide to reach out I look forward to engaging them. Uh, I look forward to helping in any way that I can. Just like, you know, coming in contact with you. I didn't expect this. And and it's, uh, it's an honor to be here with you. So we'll see what happens next, man. As Stevie Wonder said, I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be.
0: Absolutely. And I appreciate you, man, for for sharing that and being with us today, man. We're going deep. We talked about a lot of stuff. And uh, now, nah, man, you know, this ain't a soundbite either, though. You know, you said it's a brief moment. This ain't a soundbite. So right. I always tell people, you know, a tweet, a Facebook post is lazy. Coming on this platform and speaking your truth, that's the hard stuff to do. And in this time of chaos and, you know, so much bias, and we don't even know each other. That's right. Um, this is a great opportunity for us to, you know, pull back the veil a little bit. Again, yep. uh, where can people find you at if they want to reach
1: out to you? Go to my website. It's UlyssesButchSlaughter.com. Again, it's UlyssesButchSlaughter.com. That's the best way to start. Uh, I do most of my work off of that platform. Um, and I am usually very good at responding pretty fast.
0: I'm going to give a plug for his podcast, too. It's the Alpha Black. Forgive is a new mantra for black man, correct? Yeah, and uh, I bought his book, man. I listened to some of his stuff, like on read. It's so good, you know. My I have a media company. I call it podcast, like a platinum album, right? At Ironbound Media, that's our mantra: podcast, like a platinum album. Because the idea is, you want to create a piece of content that's so good, you actually want to go back and listen to it, right? A lot of your stuff on that podcast, I find myself going back to listen to, right? And that's very rare in the stuff I come across consume these days and uh you nail it. So check out that podcast and get his book. Right? After listening to the Amos Wilson piece like 3 or 4 times, I just I was like, "Oh, you got a book." I went on your website, boom. You know, and uh got the book and I'm reading it now and it's phenomenal. So I encourage you all out there to do that. And uh for everyone else, I also encourage you to subscribe and support this podcast by giving us a five-star review and leaving a review on iTunes. Also, for this show, to anyone in your network who you feel identifies with the subject matter, Ulysses, I'll tell you, I had a young man, I wouldn't call him a young man, a guy I went to high school with who listened to my podcast, right? I haven't talked to him in years, whatever. We weren't even the coolest. He reached out to me on social media and said, Mike, I've never heard black men talk the way you guys talk on your podcast. Thank you. You know, and so that's kind of why we do this. When I say, if you know people who can identify with the subject matter, just forward it to them. You can also head over to confessionsofanativeson.com Sign up for our newsletter. If you like this type of dialogue and are interested in booking me to speak at your organization, you can contact me through the website. Just click the tab that says book me to speak. Fill out your contact information and someone from my team will get back to you as soon as possible. Also, order some dope coffee at www.realdope.coffee. We've got to start supporting our own businesses, y'all. It's black and veteran owned and is the epitome of economic empowerment. Feel free to message me on LinkedIn or shoot me an email at Mike or Special shout out to my co-producer Mike Lloyd and the team from the Gift of Sounds Network. Rune for everyone that's black. Until next time, everyone, peace, love, and have a great rest of your week. I'm a free black man, hold up my head, black man. Beautiful black man. I don't ever feel nice, man. I love your brother, black man, and chase our trees, black man, and get